Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer, author, and software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. Verbs, verbs, everywhere are verbs. Marking up my code and changing my mind. Put this and get that. Can't you see the verbs? Hey, I like the addition there. That's good. That's good. We'll throw some stuff in there yeah. too. I was wondering if you'd see that. Yeah. Uh, way to go. Way to go. I like that. I knew where you were going with it. So. Yeah. HTTP or Hypertext Transfer Protocol is a protocol for transferring documents, HTML, images, that sort of thing, between client, usually a web browser, and a server. HTTP verbs or HTTP methods are codified forms of communication in the client-server relationship. In this episode, we're going to talk about HTTP verbs. First, defining the most common ones. Then we'll get into some less common verbs before talking about a few interesting situations that you may face when using your verbs. Conjugating them. Wait, no, that, that's not right. Anyways, Will, what's been conjugating you lately? That sounds rather personal. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's been kind of interesting. I've, I've been trying to go over the uh, AWS CDK stuff, basically trying to study for the next exam in the series, although there's a lot of material. Yeah, and it's, it's really cleared up a lot of stuff that really mystified me when I started messing with this stuff. And I, I keep finding things that are just, you know, like I complained, oh, this isn't there. Like if you test a Lambda, you know, you've got like a thing where you can set the payload and, and send it you know, to test the Lambda, but you got to build that whole JSON payload, which has got a whole lot of other crap in there other than just your payload, right? Like it's, uh, it's whatever's coming off of an SQS queue or a, uh, API gateway or whatever. And I never noticed the feature where there's a template for that. Like you could just click it out of a dropdown and it puts all the crap in there and you just fill in your little piece. I've been like manually typing that this whole time. I didn't know that was there. And really? So it's like you find, you find stuff like that and you're like, oh, man, <laughs> you know, because you're like, how much time did I waste? I know it like, and it was, the thing is, is the dropdown is on that form, but it's set to a default value that has nothing in it. And so it's like, oh, it's optional. I don't have it. I didn't make a template. So there probably isn't one. I didn't ever click on it, essentially. And and so like, learn, that actually, actually, I didn't learn from the course. I learned from a coworker, but yeah, it's been very interesting. I'm I'm much more positive about the AWS ecosystem now, uh, having gotten some training on it. Because there's some stuff that they do things. That's cool. Yeah, they they do things kind of weird sometimes. So, and it it's not like I, I feel like they made the learning curve worse than it had to be. But once you get up there a ways, it's it's not so bad because you kind of understand how they think. Um. So yeah, how about you? I have been fighting CSS today. Ew. Speaking of learning curves. Oh yes, yes. I, I I've actually had a few epic battles with the uh, with Angular as I've been doing more front end work lately. Knockout, drag out. I don't know. Like, oh, you get to work with knockout. That sounds way better than CSS. Drag out. That's it. that's <laughs> if we're knocking on drag out fights. Uh, yeah. No. Uh, I think I texted you a, a a few of the silly mistakes that I have made with the uh, with date pickers and a few other things. But uh, yeah, today it was all right. I've I've got the functionality finally there. 
I picked up the story. I knew it was going to be a big story, but it's been become a massive story just because there's so much like intricacies in this. And I'm not generally a front end developer. I ended up getting, you know, put in charge of the team doing the front end on this application. And so that's fine. I, I'll, I'm a lead developer. I'll go where I'm needed and I'll, I'll do the best that I absolutely can wherever they put me. But that said, this is not my forte. And so like, I've got a good eye. I just don't do it. So I don't know it. But uh, I got everything kind of where I wanted it, except for the the close icon button, you know, the little X up in the corner. So this is one, uh, this is a modal type dialogue for entering a new item. And uh, it it would show up on the modal and then disappear. And I finally found it up in the very top corner of the screen. So like, did your positioning change in one of the elements upstream or something? I, I don't really know for sure. What I did was I called up one of, well, actually I messaged one of our designers and I was like, hey man, can you take a look at this with me? I am not very good at CSS and I feel like you're going to look at it and immediately know what's wrong with it. And so he looked at the CSS and, I, and he was like, I see what you're doing there, how you're trying to get it to where you want it to go. And like, I'm not sure what's causing it to do that. Um, but he's like, what happens if you take that out? And I, I showed him, basically it was putting it on the next line. It wasn't like in line with the title there. And so he's like, what happens if you switch those two elements in your HTML and you put the the button above the uh, the H1? And sure enough, that fixed it. Well, yeah, he's like, yeah, you can get rid of all that other stuff that, that I had you comment out. You don't need that. You know, he's like, I'm not a big fan of float because we had we were using I was using a float on there. He's like, but if it works for you, I'm not yeah. going to complain. And then he was like, Do you want to make it like this or that? I was like, No, they will be so happy that it it's there. If you don't like the float, wait till you see what I do with tables. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but uh, no, he uh, it, it was good. It was good. Like maybe ten minutes on the call after I'd spent an hour like fighting it. I, what I did was I, I spent 30 minutes on it. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go do everything else and then come back to this. And then I spent another 30 minutes on it. And I was like, all right, I'm going to go to lunch. And when I got back from lunch, I had three pull requests I had to look at. So it was about an hour later when I finally got got around to reaching out to him. But yeah, we hopped on a call, maybe 10 minutes. I don't even think we we're on a call that long before he had it solved. And I'm like, yep. And this is why I reached out to you. Because I knew I had someone I could, that could help me with the CSS. The Angular stuff, not so much, but definitely the CSS. So, Saving money is hard, especially when you have to hire someone just for their CSS skills. Lucas Casades is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. And just like us here at Complete Developer Podcast, he focuses on helping you not only establish a real plan, but to take action on that plan so that you can live your best life. Investing in financial planning services really comes down to whether or not you can actually improve your finances. And with the help of Level Up, there is a compounding impact of making better financial decisions that will easily pay for itself. Level Up has a unique pricing model that is designed to help you no matter where you are in your career. Uh, So whether you're a junior developer just starting out 
you're just now getting out of a boot camp or college, or you're a grizzled senior developer who is on his last leg in development, Lucas has a plan for you. I like how you said last leg when I'm like limping around. (laughs) Thanks, man. (laughs) Lucas is also a fiduciary for his clients, meaning he's not here to sell you a product, but to actually help guide you to a better financial situation. You guys can catch his podcast, Techie Personal Finance Bootcamp, where he covers financial topics you probably face and interviews other IT professionals who share how they navigated their careers. You can also learn a lot more at levelupfinancialplanning.com. Hypertext Transfer Protocol is an application layer protocol, which is part of the TCP IP family. That means that it's a protocol for the ends of transmission over TCP IP. In a client-server relationship, HTTP is the protocol for how the end client will communicate and pass information to and from the end server. For example, web documents, including HTML, images, videos, be just CSS, uh, etc., are passed individually through HTTP, then constructed on the client into a single complete document to be presented as a website. HTTP is passed through TCP or Transmission Control Protocol, which is a transport layer protocol that provides a connection-based data transmission service. And then the TCP is passed through IP, or Internet Protocol, which is a network layer protocol providing a connectionless data transmission service. The data is passed from link to link within IP And there's no end-to-end connection established. Uh, Then, of course, there is the data link and physical layers. But this isn't a networking class, and I really didn't feel like getting my book out, so we're not going to go into all that. Right. Is it your book or is it my book? (laughs) It's my book because I uh, my textbook from class last year. Ah, okay. Yeah, I didn't. I don't. I don't know where mine is. Anyway, yeah, you probably do. Uh, The protocol defines a set of request methods to tell the recipient what actions need to be performed. These request methods are referred to as HTTP verbs. The REST architecture uses a particular subset of HTTP verbs that correlate to CRUD in the database world, which is create, read, update, and delete operations. While REST only uses a handful of the verbs, there are 39 total HTTP verbs currently. In this episode... We're going to look at the common and a few of the less common HTTP verbs. We'll start by looking at the structure of an HTTP call to help define some terminology that will be used throughout the episode. Then we'll look at the REST CRUD verbs, you know, the ones that associate with the with the REST architecture or can kind of correlate to CRUD operations followed by some other common verbs that you may see. Then we'll take a look at a few of what I defined as interesting, but less common HTTP verbs. Uh, I found a really cool link, and I'll, I'll post it with this, um, that lists out all of them and defines them. So it was pretty cool. Uh, finally, we'll discuss some unique situations that you may face when using HTTP. Let's start out with what is in an HTTP call. Um, you know, in other words, the terminology we're going to talk about. So the anatomy of an HTTP request, essentially. 
The first piece is the request line, and this contains the HTTP method, the URI, and the HTTP protocol. Yeah, so this would be something like get and then the the URI URL that you're calling on the server and then HTTP 1.0 or something like that. Then there's the header. And this contains metadata about a request. It's formatted as key value pairs with a colon between the name and the value. And then each pair is on a new line. Uh, this is a pretty common place for things like your authentication token, you know, uh, some of the cache control stuff, that sort of thing. Yeah. Here. Core stuff, like all sorts it, of things. It's cross-cutting concerns, really. Yeah, like it is. That is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's the body, which contains the information that is being sent to the server from the client. So next, there's the anatomy of the HTTP response. This is the other direction. So the request is the one that heads into the server. The response is what comes back after the request has been sent in. And so instead of a request line, we have a status line that contains the status of the request. Uh, If it was successful or if there is an error, Basically, these are codes that indicate why a request was not successful or what to expect in the response. For example, a 204 is a success with no content returned. Right. And part of the system I was working on today, a 500 actually wraps a 503 that was coming out of AWS because I'm dumb. The next piece is the header, which contains metadata from the server about the response. And again, this will have some of the caching type stuff and and those kind of cross-cutting concerns in the same place. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's usually it's more about it's information from the server to the client whereas the header and the request is information from the client to the server. Right. Yeah. And sometimes depending on the kind of handshake protocol it might be the client reaches out with reaches out to the server, gets a token that gets sent back and then puts that in future requests. So there's like this whole process. It's fun. And then there's the body in the response. And this is where your data is. This is what you're you're asking for. This is what you're sending off and saying, hey, give me this. This is the inside of the envelope if you're thinking snail mail. But yeah, this one's also optional. So you may or may not have that, uh, the body on that. Now, a safe HTTP method um, and this is a particular a term we're going to use as calling the, a method as safe, basically means that it doesn't alter the state of the server. It's pretty much just read-only. Yeah, and an HTTP call is idempotent when repeatedly making the same call returns the same result. Or the same structure of result, too. Right. It's got the same stuff in it, same headers. Yeah. All that. Although I think maybe with, with like things like the e-tag change, Maybe in some cases. I mean, there's like some there's some weird stuff that, yeah. That's a that's a very good question. That I'm not sure about. Yeah, put a star beside that one, and y'all go look at. Yeah, up. somebody tell us. Yeah, you'll learn a lot by telling us, and so will we. That's a that's a very good question. And then finally, a cacheable HTTP response is one that can be stored on the client after being called once without having to call the API or whatever remote system multiple times. So, CRUD-related verbs, at least the most commonly used ones. Yeah. Yeah. These are, these are the ones that you're most likely to see and use out in the, 
in the wilds of the web. Yeah, we wanted to say the real world, but it's the digital world. Yeah, I know. I, I stopped myself from saying the real world, so I said the wilds of the web. I like that. We should write a book called The Wilds of the Web. <laughs> All right. The first one we're going to talk about, uh, since we're relating these to CRUD, um, we're going to go go down that uh, that acronym. So the first one we're going to talk about is POSTS. And this correlates to CREATE of CRUD and is used for creating new resources. Big surprise, you're posting something new. It can also be used for creating uh, subordinate resources on a parent. So like if you're thinking like you have a tree structure or you have some kind of object graph and you're putting something in the, well, not necessarily putting something in the parent, but you're creating a new instance that goes in the parent, then that would be a post. Post is neither safe because it, uh, it definitely changes the state and it is not item potent because, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be different each time you post. Well, I mean, it's not impotent if you screw up and it doesn't get in. Well, like, there's that. You, know, you get a 400 yeah. something, but uh, yeah, then it's not impotent because you'll keep doing yeah. it. Uh, I, I can tell you that from today. Yeah. Basically, data will be resubmitted if called again. Right. It can also not be bookmarked or cached, and parameters are not saved in browser history. Uh, and this is pretty important from a security perspective. Yes, very. Uh, because your login is a post. Mm-hmm. It's usually why a lot of places use like um, OAuth or tokenization, stuff like that to keep you logged in. There are no restrictions. So you can literally send binary data through a post. Right. But it, I mean, it is encoded. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is something to bear in mind. So it's not like raw binary. It's, it's made, it's, it, it's embigonated. Is that the embigonated? <laughs> I think that's, I think that's a Gilbert <laughs> word. Uh, yeah. Bigonated, I like it. Yeah. It's like anti compressed data is also not displayed in the URL. Um, items being created get passed through the request body. Yeah. So it's, you pass it in as an object in the request body, um, typically as JSON, older stuff, maybe XML, older than that. I don't know. Will you tell me? Uh, I've seen CSV past. I've seen I could see, files. yeah, I could, I, I could see CSV. Yeah, well, the places I've seen it, you don't want to see it. Like, well, no, no, I'm just, I'm, I, it was a bad idea, but yeah, yeah, I could, I could, I could perceive of that. Success responses may be 200 or a 201, which is created. There may or may not be a response body because technically, like, if you're if you're posting, you might getting a new ID if the database is creating the ID, and then that could be returned in the header. I've seen that before. It also might be a situation where it's write once, read never, for, yeah. as far as the user's concerned. That's true, too. So, the next one, the R in CRUD, uh, is the get. Uh, and that correlates, you know, again, to the read of CRUD. Uh, it's used for accessing existing resources from storage. Now, gets is very important to make sure they are safe and idempotent. Do not ever expose unsafe methods by way of a get. Not only will you have problems with caching, but you'll have problems with data corruption when web, web crawlers hit it. Yeah. Ask me how I know. By unsafe, we mean changing the state. And yeah, that we're not, we're not talking security here. We're talking about like what's happening when you hit that method. And 
yeah, it should not change the state of anything. Should not even increment any counters or anything like that. Yeah. So like last login time or last use time, you probably don't want to change that on a get request. Yeah. No. Because it will be unreliable. Because you can cache these requests and it can remain in the browser history that that makes the client side of your applications run a lot faster by being able to cache these. Yeah. You can also, you can bookmark. also bookmark them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, one neat thing you can do is you can apply length restrictions with get requests. Um, I don't know that I've ever had to do that. Um, at least I can't think of a time offhand, although there's probably something that's glaringly obvious that'll hit me later in the episode. So uh, don't. I, I haven't. I was working with, this was when I was a junior. I was working with another junior who ran into an issue where it was something was being passed in as a string or like as a query string. And I was like, that should not be in a get request. That should be, you know, passed in in, a, in the body. Yeah. Or sometimes, it, you know, it, you know, you can have a post that, you know, potentially is not necessarily item potent, but is giddy. Yeah. In certain ways, like a search in, in a lot of cases would be kind of like that. Items you're getting will be in the response body of a get request, uh, typically as XML or JSON uh, or, you know, binary or whatever other, you know, MIME type you want out there. Yeah. Yeah. Most, most of what's coming back is, is usually XML or JSON, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen, I've seen as binary. I've seen a lot of different things come back. Success responses usually return 200 okay status with the, the data in the body. And errors are either 404 not found or 400 bad requests. Yeah, sometimes you'll see 403s and those kind of things yeah. too. But yeah, these are just the most common ones. So yeah, the next one is a put. This correlates to the update of CRUD. It's used to replace an existing resource. It is not a safe operation, but may or may not be item potent depending on if it increments a counter. Uh, it is kind of suggested to make put item potent, if you if possible, um, to to make the puts item potent, and if you need to do something that replaces a resource and can't be item potent, to use a post. At least that was the suggestions that I read when I was writing this. I thought huh. that was interesting. Yeah, yeah, because that I get it. I just I'm not exactly sure that like if you do that, like what's the use case for a post then or for a put rather. Versus, um, that seems kind of strange to me, but I may not be thinking all the way through. Yeah, I think it's because you're not like you're changing the data, but you're not changing the the resource state itself. Yeah, the resource itself. Yeah, I, I'm not sure because the thing is, put completely replaces the item that's passed in via the request body. So it's not you're not replacing pieces; you're replacing the whole thing, but it's not changing. Well, and it might be item potent with respect to the parent. Yeah. Because it's a reference to, you know, it's got the reference to the child or whatever, but I mean. And you're not changing the ID or anything like that. I think it's just like, so long as you're not implementing, incrementing a counter, because with, with a post, when you're creating a new resource, you're implementing typically like a, a sequence or something, depending on the type of database you have, but to, um, for the, you're changing the state of the system 
to get the next ID in the sequence. Yeah, it still seems really weird to me. Um, it's just that's not that's not generally what I've seen. Oh, so they're for updating the state, maybe. Okay, so if you invoke the same put multiple times, the first one does something, but the the next one does not. So it's not like okay, you're yeah. a counter. It's it's uh, it's yeah. already in that state, and so it is idempotent because you didn't change anything. Yeah, yeah. So if you if you're not incrementing a counter and you send the okay. same the same put through every time. It's going, yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's yeah. going to not change anything, but if you do a post, it's going to create a new object. Gotcha. I was, uh, yeah, I, I was like, man, that really seems wrong, but that explanation makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, thank you, Google, for that quick response yeah. to my question that didn't have an answer from 2005 this time. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. So, yeah, you know, put is obviously going to complete. You know, where possible, and you want to keep it as seamless as you possibly can. Yeah. It's easy to use via HTML um, and should integrate well with servers that already support put. Yeah. And if your server doesn't support put, uh, you should definitely post a new one to your data center. Uh, actually, you should patch. <laughs> yeah, there you go. In more than one <laughs> sense, probably. Um and successful responses on a put will return a 200 or a 204. 204 is no content, but you know, hey, we got it got through. Um, and errors are usually 404 if the existing item cannot be found in the collection. Yeah. Yeah. So next is patch. And that kind of correlates also to update of CRUD. But instead of replacing a resource, it's used to modify an existing resource. Now, this one is neither safe nor item potent. Though it can be implemented in a way to be item potent uh, to avoid collision with other patch requests. Yeah, I could also see this being something that if you're doing like an event stream type yeah. thing going on, um, maybe there's something there with that. Patch only replaces the parts of a resource or item that are passed in instead of replacing the entire item. So you don't, you don't, you know, patch the entire thing. You're just you're sending some of the fields. Mm-hmm. Like you basically send the ID and the ones that are the ones you want changed. Right. Yeah. The body of a patch request contains instructions on how to modify the existing resources to create a new version of that resource. Basically, what I just said, you send in the things you want changed and the ID of the resource you want to change them on. Yeah. Now, it can be dangerous because multiple patch requests on the same resource near the same time can lead to collisions. And so you're going to want to kind of block the resource while one request is running before the next one so that you can avoid these collisions. You're probably also going to, you know, want to uh, consider some of your business logic because there's going to be situations where if you have two two patch requests coming in and they're altering different fields, it may get the thing, the resource into an invalid state. So you, you really need to think about that carefully. That said, I've very rarely run into any situation where I've been doing patch requests where that was a problem because, you know, there there wasn't enough load on the system. Yeah, it, it kind of depends. Like, I think it'd be more in the more of a microservices thing where it's not a direct client, like, yeah, client server relationship where it may be multiple. Yeah, like there's a batch process and a user doing yeah. something to, mm-hmm. you know, their payment method at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Successful responses return 200 or 204 no content. 
Whereas errors are typically a 404 if the existing item can't be found in the collection. Right. And obviously you'll still have, you know, 403s and those kind of things. But, oh, yeah. Um, you know, the other thing, most of the time, too, if you're at a point where you can patch, you probably were at a point you could do a get mm-hmm. in a typical workflow. Not, yeah. not necessarily always. Um, so the final one uh, is the delete. And this correlates directly to the delete of CRUD. Uh, it's used completely unsurprisingly to delete an item from a collection. Yeah. Uh, this is not safe. <laughs> it changes the state. Big surprise. It deletes something. It, you know. Um, however, it can be set up to be item potent, depending on how you do it, so that repeatedly calling the delete on a resource will not do anything since the resource is already gone. Yeah. Where it gets weird is what's the difference between this and a, if you have a soft delete, what's the difference between this and a patch? Yeah. Like, and does it matter whether your user knows that it's a soft delete? Yeah. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. It's a nuisance thinking about that, uh, which is why we're going to talk about it later. So maybe we don't have to. Yeah. Depending on how the server is set up, calling a delete a second time may return a 404 because the resource is gone and not there to be deleted. Mm-hmm. If deleting an item decrements a counter, then it's no longer item potent. So if you have a counter of like how many items are in this, uh, that's separate, that's not just like calculated. Yeah. No longer item potent because, you know, sending that in again is going to do that. I don't know. I guess you could technically make it make it item potent if you if you check that the resource is there before decrementing the counter and go, hey, the resource has already been deleted. We're not going to decrement this counter. Why did you send it in to be deleted twice? Yeah, which is probably a good idea too, especially like as that travels down the stack Mm -hmm. uh, because you don't really want superfluous changes uh, because those other layers below that may not be item potent either, even if your stuff is. No. And then success responses are going to be 200 or 204. And typical errors are around the 404 if the item being deleted can't be found. Though if the item being deleted can't be found, it's probably already deleted and maybe you should be handling that error so that you have your item potency. Or you could just post it again and then delete. There you go. I've, I've worked with people that thought about things that way and it, it concerned me greatly. Yeah, speaking of things that would, you know, that might concern you greatly, there are other common verbs uh, and you, you will see these. They're not necessarily in the, they're not in the CRUD uh, group, uh, but, but they are fairly common. Uh, the first one is head. Uh, and this mirrors the functionality of other methods, but without the body. Because, you know, we're clever. Basically, it just returns the headers or the metadata of a method when you reach out. Just if you're needing to get information about a method before doing anything. Yeah. So this really is helpful for extending APIs, making APIs kind of dynamic. If you think about like the pre-Swagger days, uh, you know, this is how you would query and go, okay, how do I talk to this endpoint? Yeah. And you get the list of all those things and you go, okay, give me all the metadata. And now, okay, I know what's got to go in there. No. It's also helpful for testing and troubleshooting because it allows you to pass the headers from one resource into another request to mimic a different environment. Uh, the next one is options, which describes and or changes the communication options on the target resource. Um, I will point out here that you'll see this one a lot in Angular apps. Mm-hmm. You know, um, especially for like checking like cores compatibility and those kind of 
you know, the stuff that's like, if an options call goes through and it's fine, you, you never care. Uh, but when it doesn't, it's probably something that's really going to be annoying. Yes. And, and, you know, cores is 90% of annoyance in the universe. Dealing with <laughs> so, cores earlier today, too. Uh-huh. So, yeah, it's, it's been fun being back on the front end. Boy. <laughs> okay, really quickly. We were, we were in a meeting and, um, like, we came to the end of our normal meeting time and we were just like, hey, let's, let's all take a break and then come back in 10 minutes. And, uh, so we get back and like our back end lead developer types, I'm back. Back end QA types, I'm back. So I'm like, I can't help it. I just typed in, I'm front. <laughs> You're front. <laughs> something like that. Something like that. But basically, um, so options are used to open and lock channels of communication. Yeah, basically, this is stuff that didn't change. It also allows the client to choose the requirements or options related to a resource without actually calling that resource. Next is trace. And this creates and implements a message loopback test. It does this so you can see the path to and back from a targeted resource. So let's say you're a web browser. You can do a trace to find the path to your API and back and see how it's going to be traveling. Right. And this is helpful in identifying potential problems and areas of failure. Uh, that's, I would imagine in certain parts of the world, that's really important right now. Like you don't want uh, certain packets to transit certain borders and you right. kind of want to be able to check that at the level where you're actually doing the calls, uh, you know, not going down the network stack and trying to do it on the terminal, but going, okay, well, you know, yeah. can I check this from HTTP? This mirrors the essential pathing of a resource. So it'll, it'll give you back the, hey, it sends a call out, gets it back and says, hey, here's the route I took. It is good for debugging, but it's not recommended by OWASP because of the potential for cross-site tracing, which I did not know that. Um, I will tell you the OWASP stuff changed this year too, by the way. Yeah, we'll be doing an episode on that at some point. Yeah, we'll have to get into that one. So... The final one we're going to talk about under the common other common verbs that you're likely to see is connect. And this creates communication with a resource without direct interaction. And it basically establishes a tunnel to the server that's holding the resource that you need. Yeah, and it creates a two-way communication for that purpose. This is kind of how uh, websites use SSL or um, HTTPS. So it's like an HTTP proxy server tunnels through the TCP connection and keeps that communication open for you. So, so yeah, uncommon verbs. Uh, now, these are, these are ones like, uh, there are 39 verbs total. And we have talked about five, six, seven, eight, nine of them. So there are 30 more that we have not talked about. And I picked four of them that looked interesting to me that I thought you guys might find interesting as well. Be cool if uh, you guys had some others that you have used or have seen that are very uncommon and you want to like comment on the episode or shoot us an email at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Because you do that and the next time we talk about... Uh, HTTP stuff or anything like that, we'll uh, we'll give you a shout out 
and mention some of your your favorite uncommon HTTP verbs. So the first one is update. And this modifies a cached resource to match a particular version of the resource from the server. Uh, It allows the client to update any cached version-controlled item to match the version from the server. Uh, It is item-potent, but not safe. Yeah, because repeatedly calling the same update, it's going to get you the same resource back from the server, but it is going to change that state because it's going to to alter your cache. Which may be getting used by other things, which is what makes it unsafe. Speaking of cache, the next one, this was the first one I put in here and I put update above it because I, I thought the order was better that way. But it's purge. No, we're not talking about the movie. This cherry picks items from the cache and discards them and any variants of them from it. So the cache speeds up website loading by, by being able to, especially with Git requests, cache them and not have to call the server every time. Sometimes, and I, I have actually used this before where I had to, you know, get rid of certain cached items because we needed we needed it fresh from the server. So we did a purge for that item. Right. You're just basically handshaking with the server and going, please do not hand me the cached version of this because it, I know it's changed or it's it's critical that it has changed or whatever. Now, the next one is prop find, which finds properties from a resource on the web that are stored as XML. And it can be used to get a collection structure from a remote resource. It's item potent and safe. This is a metadata retrieval. It is. I mean, this is this is a read-only. Yeah, I think I've seen this once or twice, like way back. I've seen this in much older applications that I've had to work with, but... We're talking like interdev days. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's XML, so... You don't see yeah. a lot of that these days. But uh, yeah, I have I have seen this very, very rarely in much older things. Uh, and the final one is search. This is what I'm surprised we don't see more often, to be honest with you. I didn't know when this one existed until I started writing this episode. But this is used to initiate a server-side search of a collection. The query is sent in the body of the request, and the verb defines how to pass queries and receive results. But doesn't specify the query semantics and it is item potent and safe. That's really interesting because I've seen a lot of places where people will use a post for this because they need the body length because you can't put all that crap in the, well, you can put all that crap in the query string, but then you're going to hate yourself Mm -hmm. and you get caching issues and it gets up very fast. So I I know I was very, very surprised when I saw this. I was like, I did not know this existed. I might have to bring it up and maybe even start using it. This one's a cool one. And it, Watch it, it set off the intrusion detection system or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it'd be terrible. Um, I mean, well, the thing is, I got to find out if it's even allowed with Angular. Yeah, I don't know. I Like I said, I never heard of it. Yeah, I hadn't either until I started looking into this. And it's really cool. So, all right, guys. Now we're going to talk about a few unique situations that you may run into. And one that Will mentioned earlier and we said we would talk about later is the very first one here. Um, kind of got me going on this section because I ran into this not long ago is the soft delete. Or basically when you want to hide information from the user, but not completely remove the role, the row from the database. Um, I had this issue recently with a user table where they, they wanted to be able to remove users who are no longer in the system employees, basically 
who are no longer work there, but they need to retain their information because it's tied to documents, legal documents, and they need to be able to say, hey, this person worked on this at this time. And so we have to maintain that. Yeah, so in that case, I would probably do a delete verb, but then, you know, like it, the action it takes is, is setting a flag. But what mm-hmm. gets what gets weird is when you have a situation where a user says, okay, I'm deleting this, and it's got, you know, there's like a trash bin. It's like, well, I did a delete, but, you know, like the, now the user knows. So, you know, you get to a point where you're starting to look at the intent of the user and trying to mold your verb usage to that which gets even more fun when you try to surface something to a user. And so you now have changed the intent because what they thought they were deleting before, they're soft deleting as far as they know now. And what do you do with your API when you don't want to version that whole mess? Which you know kind of tells me that you ought to, you've got to really be careful about designing your API. You know, I feel like you that's, a, that's a, you know, like edges of the system you really can't do agile as well as you can inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. When I looked it up, delete, for my situation, delete was the suggested verb. Because I was looking to determine, do I, need, do I need to make this a delete or a patch? And delete was the suggested for it. And so that's the direction we went. Yeah, and what if it's a mini, mini-to-mini relationship and you're deleting the, the join? <laughs> it's like, is that a, you know, and that's only a join, join row. So like, is that something that the user cares about? Like, there, there's a yeah. lot of that stuff that, that really gives me headaches every time I have to deal with it. Cause it's, it's like, this is not, this really is not as clear as, as all the pundits try to tell you it is. Yeah. Yeah. So the next one we may have just solved in our, uh, in our last uncommon verb, but that is searching. How do you pass in the query? Uh, is it in the body of the message, like a post put or patch or via query parameters? A get. I've seen both or path parameters. Yeah. For that matter. You know, because you got to bear in mind when you grab something by its ID or by, you know, some other field and that's part of the path, is that a search? Yeah. You know, yeah, that's, that's another place that things are, things are clear cut until they're not. And when they're not clear cut, they're very not clear cut. Yeah. I tend to prefer to only use path parameters if there's one, maybe two parameters and then use query parameters if there's any more than that. Uh, yeah. Just because it gets confusing. And then... The searches that I've been doing recently have not been, there's not been a lot to pass in. So I've been using query parameters with a Git uh, just because the, the data wasn't huge. Yeah. What gets you though after a while is um, as you start adding parameters, there's going to be a point where you got to cut over. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if people are using the API or you've got lots of forms out there, it it becomes an issue. Yeah. So it's just, it's hard to get this right. You got to really think. Uh, very, very carefully about the long term. Like yeah. you don't want to, you don't want to be doing this stuff willy nilly. Now, speaking of another unique situation that people do willy nilly all the time, uh, when is it better to replace the resource or just update a field or two? In other words, when do you use a put versus a patch? And that may not be the way you think it is mm-hmm. all the time. You know, for instance, I worked on a system where we had dynamic menus that the users could build for their, you know, their public facing site. Well, for us, we rebuilt that tree structure every time they changed a menu item because we were doing some we were doing some janky things because of you know what SQL did not support and what um, in Hibernate didn't support at that time. I don't know if it does yet or not. And so for us, it was a total complete replacement of 
that you know chunk of nodes essentially for the user it looked like a patch but for us it was a put well it was web form so it was even before you know like we didn't it was always a post uh, but uh that was when you had post and get and that was it <laughs> yeah like we weren't we weren't at the point to have that argument because we didn't have a choice yeah uh, we didn't have either choice um but you know that's something to think about like what you know when do you want to do it and you know bear in mind like it's what the user comprehends that your system is doing and then what your system is actually doing. And those two things may not meet. So the last one we have here is, do you use post or put for adding a new object or resource to an existing collection? Because both both of them can create a new resource, like a new row on an existing data table. Yeah. And so when I was, I didn't, I didn't really realize that about put. I knew it was possible, but I just didn't know that it was something that people did. And what what I read was basically you use post or the suggestion that on the blog I was reading was saying to use post for if the ID is generated by the system and use put if the ID is generated by the user. Yeah. Well, it kind of goes around user intent. I mean, because like if you have a, a collection uh, under some object, well, if you're adding, you know, if you're adding a brand new one and that thing is a thing by itself, yeah. right, then you might, you know, you might post that in. Uh, but if it's a relationship between two other things and it really doesn't exist except as like this kind of ephemeral type thing, you might, you know, you might not do that. You might do, you know, actually you might do a patch in that case. Um, or, or you might do a put when you create it, you know, like it, <sighs> some of this stuff is, yeah, just just bear in mind, like be able to argue it and then make a really strong assertion and get the more pedantic members of your team to fight it out while you get other stuff done. Um, <laughs> that's that's largely what I would recommend here because like unless you really enjoy these kind of discussions, there's more productive uses of your time. Yeah. And there's probably an answer that's better than the others, but whether you spend more time than you need to to get it is a whole other situation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, guys, this has been a very high-level overview of the more common HTTP verbs. Use the information here to help better your understanding of how hypertext transfer protocol works. If you aren't confined to a particular architecture like REST by your framework or whatever, try out some of the less common ones. I mean, I definitely want to try out the search because uh, it just seems cool. You know, something that you may not have used before. This could be a starting point for more in-depth learning on how the underlying processes we use as web developers all the time actually work. That's pretty much all we got. We will catch you guys next week. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. For references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash completedeveloperpodcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons. You can also follow us on Twitter at completedevpod 
like our page on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.